are listening to the Auditory Entertainment's production of Black Amazon of Mars, performed by Miranda Johnson and Ryan Johnson. Part 2 The flames leaped high from the fire in the windless gorge. Men sat around it in a great circle, the wild riders out of the mountain valleys of Mech. They sat with the curbed and shivering eagerness of wolves around a dying quarry. Now and again their white teeth showed in a kind of silent laughter, and their eyes watched. A is strong, they whispered one to the other. He will live the night out, surely. On an outcrop of rock sat the Lord Chiron, wrapped in a black cloak, holding the great axe in the crook of his arm. Beside him, Otar huddled in the snow. Close by, the long spears had been driven deep and lashed together to make a scaffolding, and upon this frame was hung a man, a big man, iron-muscled and very lean, the bulk of his shoulders filling the space between the bending shafts. Eric John Stark, of Earth, out of Mercury. He had already been scourged without mercy. He sagged of his own weight between the spears, breathing in harsh sobs. And the trampled snow around him was spotted red. Thord was wielding the lash. He had stripped off his own coat, and his body glistened with sweat in spite of the cold. He cut his victim with great care, making the long lash sing and crack. He was proud of his skill. Stark did not cry out. Presently, Thord stepped back, panting, and looked at the Lord Chiron and the black helm nodded. Thor dropped the whip. He went up to the big, dark man and lifted his head by the hair. Stark, he said, and shook his head roughly. Stranger. Eyes opened and stared at him, and Thord could not repress a slight shiver. It seemed that the pain and indignity had wrought some evil magic on this man he had ridden with and thought he knew. He had seen exactly the same gaze once in a big snow cat caught in a trap, and he felt suddenly that it was not a man he spoke to, but a predatory beast. Stark, he said, where is the talisman of Ban Kruok? The Earthman did not answer. Thord laughed. He glanced up at the sky, where the moons rode low and swift. <laughs> the night is only half gone. Do you think you can last it out? The cold, cruel, patient eyes watched Thord. There was no reply. Some quality of pride in that gaze angered the barbarian. It seemed to mock him, who was so sure of his ability to loosen a reluctant tongue. You think I cannot make you talk, don't you? You don't know me, stranger. You do not know Thord, who can make the rock speak if he will. He reached out with his free hand and struck Stark across the face. 
It seemed impossible that anything so still could move so quickly. There was an ugly flash of teeth, and Thor's wrist was caught above the thumb joint. He bellowed, and the iron jaws closed down, worrying the bone. Quite suddenly, Thord screamed. Not for pain, but for panic. And the rows of watching men swayed forward, and even the Lord Chiron rose up, startled. Look, ran the whispering around the fire. Look how he growls. Thord had let go of Stark's hair and was beating him about the head with a clenched fist. His face was white. Werewolf! He screamed. Let me go! Beast thing, let me go! But the dark man clung to Thord's wrist, snarling, and did not hear his cries. After a bit, there came the dull crack of bone. Stark opened his jaws. Thord ceased to strike him. He backed off slowly, staring at the torn flesh. Stark had sunk down to the length of his arms. With his left hand, Thor drew his knife. The Lord Chiron stepped forward. Wait, Thord. It is a thing of evil, whispered the barbarian. Warlock, werewolf, beast. He sprang at Stark. The man in armor moved very swiftly, and the great axe went whirling through the air. It caught Thord squarely where the cords of his neck ran into the shoulder, caught and shore on through. There was silence in the valley. The Lord Chiron walked slowly across the trampled snow and took up his axe again. I will be obeyed, he said and I will not stand for fear, not of God, man, nor devil. He gestured toward Stark. Cut him down, and see that he does not die. He strode away, and Otar began to laugh. From a vast distance, Stark heard that shrill, wild laughter. His mouth was full of blood, and he was mad with a cold fury. A cunning that was purely animal guided his movements then. His head fell forward, and his body hung inert against the thongs. He might have almost been dead. A knot of men came towards him. He listened to them. They were hesitant and afraid. Then, as he did not move, they plucked up courage and came closer and one prodded him gently with the point of his spear. Prick him well, said another. Let us be sure. The sharp point bit a little deeper. A few drops of blood welled out and joined the small red streams that ran from the wheels of the lash. Stark did not stir. The spearman grunted. He is safe enough now. Stark felt the knife blades working at the thongs. He waited. The rawhide snapped, and he was set free. He did not fall. He would not have fallen if he had taken a death wound. He gathered his legs under him and sprang. He picked up the spearmen in that first rush 
and flung him into the fire. Then he began to run toward the place where the scaly mounts were herded, leaving a trail of blood behind him on the snow. A man loomed up in front of him. He saw the shadow of a spear and swerved, and caught the haft in his two hands. He wrenched it free and struck down with the butt of it, and went on. Behind him he heard voices shouting in the beginning of turmoil. The Lord Chiron turned and came back, striding fast. There were men before Stark now, many men. The circle of watchers breaking up because there had been nothing more to watch. He gripped the long spear. It was a good weapon, better than the flint-tipped stick which the boy in Chaka had hunted the giant lizard of the rocks. His body curved into a half-crouch. He voiced one cry, the challenging scream of a predatory killer, and went in among the men. He did slaughter with that spear. They were not expecting attack. They were not expecting anything. Stark had sprung to life too quickly, and they were afraid of him. He could smell the fear on them. Fear not of a man like themselves, but of a creature less and more than man. He killed and was happy. They fell away from him, the wild riders of Mech. They were sure now that he was a demon. He raged among them with the bright spear, and they heard again that sound that should not have come from a human throat, and their superstitious terror rose and sent them scrambling out of his path trampling on each other in childish panic. He broke through, and now there was nothing between him and escape but two mounted men who guarded the herd. Being mounted, they had more courage. They felt that even a warlock could not stand against their charge. They came at him as he ran, the padded feet of their beasts making muffled drumming in the snow. Without breaking stride, Stark hurled his spear. It drove through one man's body and tumbled him off, so that he fell under his comrade's mount and fouled its legs. It staggered and reared up, hissing, and Stark fled on. Once he glanced over his shoulder. Through the milling, shouting crowd of men, he glimpsed a dark, mailed figure with a winged mask, going through the ruck with a loping stride, and bearing a sable axe, raised high for the throwing. Stark was close to the herd now, and they caught his scent. The Norland brutes had never liked the smell of him. And now, the reek of blood upon them was enough to set them wild. They began to hiss and snarl uneasily, rubbing their reptilian flanks together as they wheeled around, staring at him with lambent eyes. He rushed them, before they could quite decide to break. He was quick enough to catch one by the fleshy comb that served it for a forelock held it with a savage indifference to its squealing, and leaped onto its back. Then he let it bolt, and as he rode it, he yelled, a shrill, brute cry that urged the creatures onto panic. The herd broke, stampeding outward from its center like a bursting shell. Stark was in the forefront. Clinging low to the scaly back, he saw the men of Mech, scattered and churned and tramped into the snow by the flying pads. In and out of the shelters, kicking the brush walls down, 
lifting up their harsh reptilian voices. They went racketing through the camp, leaving behind them wreckage as of a storm. And Stark went with them. He snatched a cloak from off the shoulders of some petty chieftain as he went by, and then, twisting cruelly on the fleshy comb, beating with his fist at the creature's head, he got his mount turned in the way he wanted to go, down the valley. He caught one last glimpse of the Lord Chiron, fighting to hold one of the creatures long enough to mount, and then a dozen striving bodies surged around him. And Stark was gone. The beast did not slacken pace. It was as though it could outrun the alien bloody thing that clung to its back. The last fringes of the camp shot by and vanished in the gloom, and the clean snow of the lower valley lay open before it. The creature laid its belly to the ground and went, the white spray spurting from its heels. Stark hung on. His strength was gone now, run out suddenly with the battle madness. He became conscious now that he was sick and bleeding, that his body was one cruel pain. In that moment, more than in the hours that had gone before, he hated the black leader of the clans of Mech. That flight down the valley became a sort of ugly dream. Stark was aware of the rock walls reeling past, and then they seemed to widen away, and the wind came out of nowhere like the stroke of a great hammer, and he was on the open moors again. The beast began to falter and slow down. Presently, it stopped. Stark scooped up snow to rub on his wounds. He came near to fainting, but the bleeding stopped, and after that, the pain was numb to a dull ache. He wrapped the cloak around him and urged the beast to go on. Gently this time, patiently, and after it had breathed, it obeyed him, settling into the shuffling pace it could keep up for hours. He was three days on the moors. Part of the time he rode in a sort of stupor, and part of the time he was feverishly alert, watching the skyline. Frequently he took the shapes of thrusting rocks for riders, and found what cover he could until he was sure they did not move. He was afraid to dismount, for the beast had no bridle. When it halted to rest, he remained upon its back, shaking. His brow beaded with sweat. The wind scoured his tracks clean as soon as he made them. Twice in the distance he did see riders, and one of those times he burrowed into a tall drift and stayed there for several hours. The ruined towers marched with him across the bitter land, lonely giants fifty miles apart. He did not go near them. He knew that he wandered a good bit, but he could not help it, and it was probably his salvation. In those tortured badlands, riven by ages of frost and flood, one might follow a man on a straight track between two points, but to find a single rider lost in that wilderness was a matter of sheer luck, and the odds were with Stark. One evening at sunset, he came out upon a plain that sloped upward to a black and towering scarp, notched with a single pass. The light was level and blood-red, glittering on the frosty rock, 
so that it seemed the throat of the pass was aflame, with evil fires. The light was level and blood-red, glittering on the frosty rock, so that it seemed the throat of the pass was aflame with evil fires. To Stark's mind, essentially primitive and stripped now of all its acquired reason, that narrow cleft appeared as the doorway to the dwelling place of demons as horrible as the fabled creatures that roam the dark side of this native world. He looked long at the gates of death, and a dark memory crept into his brain. Memory of that nightmare experience when the talisman had made him seem to walk into that frightful pass. Not as Stark, but as Ban Kruak. He remembered Otar's words. I have seen Ban Kruak the Mighty. Was he still there beyond those darkling gates, fighting his unimagined war alone? Again, in memory, Stark heard the evil piping of the wind. Again, the shadow of a dim and terrible shape loomed up before him. He forced remembrance of that vision from his mind by a great effort. He could not turn back now. There was no place to go. His weary beast plodded on. And now, Stark saw as in a dream that a great walled city stood guard before that awful gate. He watched the city glide toward him through a crimson haze and fancied he could see the ages clustered like birds around the towers. He had reached Kushat. With the talisman of Ban Kruak still strapped in the blood-stained belt around his waist. He stood in a large square, lined about with hucksters' stalls and the booths of wine cellars. Beyond were buildings, streets, a city. Stark got a blurred impression of a grand and brooding darkness, bulking huge against the mountains, as bleak and proud as they, and quite as ancient with many ruins and deserted quarters. He was not sure how he had come there, but he was standing on his own feet, and someone was pouring sour wine into his mouth. He drank it greedily. There were people around him, jostling, chattering, demanding answers to their questions. A girl's voice said sharply, Let him be! Can't you see he's hurt? Stark looked down. She was slim and ragged, with black hair and large eyes as yellow as a cat's. She held a leather bottle in her hands. She smiled at him and said, I'm Thanis. Will you drink more wine? I will, said Stark, and did, and then said, Thank you, Thanis. He put his hand on her shoulder to steady himself. It was a supple shoulder surprisingly strong. He liked the feel of it. The crowd was still churning around him, growing larger, and now he heard the tramp of military feet. A small detachment of men in light armor pushed their way through. A very young officer whose breastplate hurt the eye with brightness demanded to be told at once who Stark was and why he had come there. No one crosses the moors in winter, he said, as though that in itself were a sign of evil intent. 
The clans of Mech are crossing them. Stark answered. An army to take Kushat. One, two days behind me. The crowd picked up at that. Excited voices tossed it back and forth and clamored for more news. Stark spoke to the officer. I will see your captain at once. You'll see the inside of a prison more likely, snapped the young man. What's this nonsense about the clans of Mech? Stark regarded him. He looked so long and so curiously that the crowd began to snicker, and the officer's beardless face flushed pink to the ears. I have fought in many wars, Stark said gently, and long ago I learned to listen when someone came to warn me of an attack. Better take him to the captain, Lou, cried Thanis. It's our skins too, you know. If there's a war... The crowd began to shout. They were all poor folk, wrapped in threadbare cloaks or tattered leather. They had no love for the guards, and whether there was war or not, their winter had been long and dull, and they were going to make the most of this excitement. Take him, Lou. Let him warn the nobles. Let them think how they will defend Kashat and the Gates of Death. Now that the talisman is gone... That is a lie, Lou shouted. And you know the penalty for telling it. Hold your tongues. I'll have you all whipped. He gestured angrily at Stark. See if he's armed. One of the soldiers stepped forward, but Stark was quicker. He slipped the thong and let the cloak fall, burying his upper body. The clansmen have already taken everything I've owned, he said, but they gave me something in return. The crowd stared at the half-heeled stripes that scarred him, and there was a drawing in of breath. The soldier picked up the cloak and laid it over the earthman's shoulders, and Lou said sullenly, Come, then. Stark's fingers tightened on Thanis' shoulders. Come with me, little one he whispered. Otherwise, I must crawl. She smiled at him and came. The crowd followed. The captain of the guards was a fleshy man with the smell of wine about him and a face already crumbling apart, though his hair was not yet gray. He sat in a squat tower above the square, and he observed Stark with no particular interest. You had something to tell? said Lou. Tell it. Stark told them, leaving out all mention of Kamar and the talisman. This was neither the time nor the man to hear that story. The captain listened to all he had to say about the gathering of the clans of Mech, and then sat studying him with a bleary shrewdness. You have proof of all this? These stripes. Their leader, Chiron ordered them laid on himself. The captain sighed and leaned back. Ugh, any wandering band of hunters could have scourged you, he said. A nameless vagabond from the gods knows where, and a lawless one at that, if I'm any judge of men. You probably deserved it. He reached for wine and smiled. Look, you... Stranger, on the Norlands, 
No one makes war in the winter. And no one ever heard of Chiron. If you hope for a reward from the city, you overshot. Badly. The Lord Chiron, said Stark, grimly controlling his anger, will be battering at your gates within two days, and you will hear of him then. Perhaps. You can wait for him, in a cell, and you can leave Kashat with the first caravan after the thaw. We have enough rabble here without taking in more. Thanis caught Stark by the cloak and held him back. Sir, she said, as though it were an unclean word. I will vouch for the stranger. The captain glanced at her. You? Sir, I am a free citizen of Kushat. According to law, I may vouch for him. If you scum of the thieves' quarters would practice the law, as well as you prat it, we would have less trouble, growled the captain. Very well. Take the creature, if you want him. I don't suppose you have anything to lose. Lou laughed. Name and dwelling place, said the captain, and wrote them down. Remember, he is not to leave the quarter. Thanis nodded. Come she said to Stark. He did not move, and she looked up at him. He was staring at the captain. His beard had grown in these last days, and his face was still scarred by Thord's blows and made wolfish with pain and fever. And now, out of this evil mask, his eyes were peering with a chill and terrible intensity at the soft-bellied man who sat and mocked him. Thanis laid her hand on his rough cheek. Come, she said. Come and rest. Gently, she turned his head. He blinked and swayed, and she took him around the waist and led him unprotesting to the door. There she paused, looking back. Sir, she said very meekly. News of this attack is being shouted through the quarter now. If it should come, and it were known that you had the warning, and did not pass it on... She made an expressive gesture and went out. Lou glanced uneasily at the captain. She's right, sir. If by chance the man did tell the truth... The captain swore. Rot! A rogue's tale. And yet... He scowled indecisively, and then reached for parchment. After all, it's a simple thing. Write it up, pass it on, and let the nobles do the worrying. His pen began to scratch. Thanis took Stark by steep and narrow ways, darkling now in the afterglow where the city climbed and fell again over the uneven rock. Stark was aware of the heavy smells of spices and unfamiliar foods, and the musky undertones of a million generations swarmed together to spawn and die in these crowded catacombs of slate and stone. There was a house, blending into other houses, close under the loom of the Great Wall. 
there was a flight of steps, hollowed deep with use, twisting crazily around outer corners. There was a low room, and a slender man named Balin, vaguely glimpsed, who said he was Thanis's brother. There was a bed of skins and woven cloths. Stark slept. Hands and voices called him back. Strong hands, shaking him. Urgent voices. He started up, growling, like an animal suddenly awakened, still lost in the dark mists of exhaustion. Balin swore and caught his fingers away. What's this you brought home, Thanis? By the gods, it snapped at me. Thanis ignored him. Stark, she said. Stark, listen. Men are coming. Soldiers, they will question you. Do you hear me? Stark said heavily, I hear. Do not speak of Kamar. Stark got to his feet, and Balin said hastily, Peace! The thing is safe. I would not steal a death warrant. His voice had a ring of truth. Stark sat down again. It was an effort to keep awake. There was clamor in the streets below. It was still night. Balin said carefully, Tell them what you told the captain. Nothing more. They'll kill you if they know. A rough hand thundered at the door, and a voice cried out, Open up! Balin sauntered over to lift the bar. Thanis sat beside Stark, her hand touching his. Stark rubbed his face. He had been shaved and washed, his wounds rubbed with salve. The belt was gone, and his blood-stained clothing. He realized only then that he was naked, and drew a cloth about him. Thanis whispered, The belt is there on that peg, under your cloak. Balin opened the door, and the room was full of men. Stark recognized the captain. There were others, four of them, young, old, intermediate, annoyed at being hauled away from their beds and their gaming tables at this hour. The sixth man wore the jeweled caress of a noble. He had a nice, kind face, gray hair, mild eyes, soft cheeks, a fine man, but ludicrous in the trappings of a soldier. Is this the man? he asked, and the captain nodded. Yes. It was his turn to say, sir. Balin brought a chair. He had a fine flourish about him. He wore a crimson jewel in his left ear, and every line of him was quick and sensitive, instinct with mockery. His eyes were brightly cynical, in a face worn with lean years of merry sinning. Stark liked him. He was a civilized man. They all were. The noble, the captain, the lot of them. So civilized that the origins of their culture were forgotten half an age before the first clay brick was laid in Babylon. Too civilized, Stark thought. Peace had drawn their fangs and cut their claws. He thought of the wild clansmen coming fast across the snow, and felt a certain pity for the men of Kushat. The noble sat down. This is a strange tale you bring, wanderer. I would hear it from your own lips. 
Stark told it. He spoke slowly, watching every word, cursing the weariness that fogged his brain. The noble, who was called Rogaine, asked him questions. Where was the camp? How many men? What were the exact words of Lord Chiron? And who was he? Stark answered with meticulous care. Rogaine sat for some time, lost in thought. He seemed worried and upset, one hand playing aimlessly with the hilt of his sword. A scholar's hand, without a callus on it. There is one thing more, said Rogaine. What business had you on the moors in winter? Stark smiled. I'm a wanderer by profession. Outlaw? asked the captain, and Stark shrugged. Mercenary is a kinder word. Rogaine studied the pattern of stripes on the Earthman's dark skin. Why did the Lord Chiron, so-called, order you scourged? I had thrashed one of his chieftains. Rogaine sighed and rose. He stood regarding Stark from under brooding brows. And at length he said, It is a wild tale. I can't believe it. And yet, why should you lie? He paused, as though hoping that Stark would answer that and relieve him of worry. Stark yawned. The tale is easily proved. Wait a day or two. I will arm the city, said Rogaine. I dare not do otherwise. But I will tell you this. An astonishing, unpleasant look came into his eyes. If the attack does not come? If you have set a whole city by the ears for nothing, I will have you flayed alive, and your body tumbled over the wall for the carrion birds to feed on. He strode out, taking his retinue with him. Balin smiled. He will do it, too, he said, and dropped the bar. Stark did not answer. He stared at Balin, and then at Thanis, and then at the belt hanging on the peg, in a curiously blank and yet penetrating fashion, like an animal that thinks its own thoughts. He took a deep breath. Then, as though he found the air clean of danger, he rolled over and went instantly to sleep. Balin lifted his shoulders expressively. He grinned at Thanis. Are you positive it's human? Hold your tongue. He's beautiful, said Thanis, and tucked the cloths around him. She continued to sit there, watching Stark's face as the slow dreams moved across it. Balin laughed. It was evening again when Stark woke. He sat up, stretching lazily. Thanis crouched by the hearthstone, stirring something savory in a blackened pot. She wore a red kirtle and a necklet of beaten gold, and her hair was combed out, smooth and shining. She smiled at him and rose, bringing him his own boots and trousers, carefully cleaned and a tunic of leather tanned fine and soft as silk. 
Stark asked her where she got it. Balin stole it. From the baths where the nobles go. He said you might as well have the best. She laughed. He had a devil of a time finding one big enough to fit you. She watched with unashamed interest while he dressed. Stark said, Don't burn the soup. She put her tongue out at him. Better be proud of that fine hide while you have it, she said. There's no sign of an attack. Stark was aware of sounds that had not been there before. The pacing of men on the wall above the house. The calling of the watch. Cushat was armed and ready and his time was running out. He hoped that Chiron had not been delayed on the moors. Thanis said, I should explain about the belt. When Balin undressed you, he saw Kamar's name scratched on the inside of the boss, and he can open a lizard's egg without harming the shell. What about you? asked Stark. She flexed her supple fingers. I do well enough. Balin came in. He had been seeking news, but there was little to be had. The soldiers are grumbling about a false alarm, he said. The people are excited, but more as though they're playing a game. Cushat has not fought a war for centuries. He sighed. The pity of it is, Stark, I believe your story, and I'm afraid. Thanis handed him a steaming bowl. Here, employ your tongue with this. Afraid indeed. Have you forgotten the wall? No one has carried it since the city was built. Let them attack. Stark was amused. For a child, you know much concerning war. I knew enough to save your skin, she flared, and Balin smiled. She has you there, Stark. And speaking of skins... He glanced up at the belt. Or better, speaking of talismans, which we were not, how did you come by it? Stark told him. He had a sin on his soul, did Kamar, and he was my friend. Balin looked at him with deep respect. You were a fool, he said. Look at you. The thing is returned to Kushat. Your promise is kept. There's nothing for you here but danger. And were I you, I would not wait to be flayed, or slain, or taken in a quarrel that is not yours. Ah, <sighs> said Stark softly. But it is mine. The Lord Chiron made it so. He too glanced at the belt. What of the talisman? Return it to where it came from, Thanis said. My brother is a better thief than Kamar. He can certainly do that. No, said Balin, with surprising force. We'll keep it, Stark and I. Whether it has power, I don't know. But if it has, I think Kashad'll need it. And in strong hands. Stark said somberly, It has power, the talisman. Whether for good or evil... I don't know. They looked at him, startled, but a touch of awe seemed to repress their curiosity. He could not tell them. He was somehow reluctant to tell anyone of that dark vision 
of what lay beyond the gates of death, which the talisman of Ban Cruach had lent him. Balin stood up. Well, for good or evil, at least the sacred relic of Ban Cruach has come home. He yawned. I'm going to bed. Will you come, Thanis, or will you stay and quarrel with our guest? I will stay, she said. And quarrel. Ah, well. Balin sighed puckishly. Good night. He vanished into an inner room. Stark looked at Thanis. She had a warm mouth, and her eyes were beautiful and full of light. He smiled, holding out his hand. The night wore on, and Stark lay drowsing. Thanis had opened the curtains. Wind and moonlight swept together into the room, and she stood leaning upon the sill, above the slumbering city. The smile that lingered in the corners of her mouth was sad and far away, and very tender. Stark stirred uneasily, making small sounds in his throat. His motions grew violent. Thanis crossed the room and touched him. Instantly, he was awake. Animal? She said softly. You dream. Stark shook his head. His eyes were still clouded, though not with sleep. Blood, he said, heavy in, in the wind. <laughs> I smell nothing but the dawn, she said and laughed. Stark rose. Get Balin. I'm going up to the wall. She did not know him now. What is it, Stark? What's wrong? Get Balin. Suddenly, it seemed that the room stifled him. He caught up his cloak and Kamar's belt and flung the door open, standing on the narrow steps outside. The moonlight caught in his eyes, pale as frost fire. Thanis shivered. Balin joined her without being called. He, too, had slept but lightly. Together, they followed Stark up the rough-cut stair that led to the top of the wall. He looked southward, where the plain ran down from the mountains and spread away below Kashat. Nothing moved out there. Nothing marred the empty whiteness. But Stark said, They will attack at dawn. End of Part 2 of Black Amazon of Mars Part 3, coming soon. You have been listening to an Auditory Entertainment's production. If you enjoyed this performance, please subscribe, leave a comment, or a review. Thank you for listening.